I'm, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege. It's actually a pretty sweet gig working here. I mean, there are the tough days, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And um, I want to start off today uh, sharing this story that I heard. It's about a guy. He's a neuroscientist. Uh, so he's above my intellectual level in all likelihood. But his name was James Fallon. Not to be confused with Jimmy Fallon. This is James Fallon. And so this guy was studying PET scans and human brains back in the fall of 2005. And when he was doing this, it was part of this study that um, the project's goal was they wanted to find links between the anatomy of the brain, what you could see on a scan, and how that correlated with the person having psychopathic tendencies. So he's taken all these brain scans of different kinds. We're talking criminals, uh, people with depression. They had folks who were schizophrenic. They had totally normal brains with no diagnoses, et cetera, et cetera and had done all these scans, and they're just looking at these, stands, uh, at these scans, trying to figure out, do we see anything that is almost always there? So that when we do a brain scan, we can say, huh, this is a pathological person. They're probably a sociopath or they're a psychopath. That'd be helpful to know, clearly. And so he also happens to have this other project going on where he's studying uh, Alzheimer's disease and the effects of that. And so as part of this other study, he went and got a bunch of scans done, including a bunch of his family members, including himself. And so he had these different stacks of these scans to review on his desk. So one day, he's going through the Alzheimer's stack, and he's sorting through them, and he gets down to the very bottom of the pile, and he noticed that there was this one scan that uh, he looked, he said, oh my gosh, that's definitely a pathological brain. And, you know, he thought, a lot of these people in this are my family members, you know, they usually kept it anonymous. You know, you had like this binding that was over the top of whose scan it was. But you thought, I got to figure out who this is because if I know them, I should probably let them know so that we can help them. So he goes, rips off the binding, and he looks. And this is after he checked all of his equipment to make sure it's accurate. It's accurate. So this is, this is the true deal. Rips the binding off, and he sees his own name. He's looking at this scan, and he said, there's no way. I can be a psychopath. I'm a family man. I'm a grandparent. I have a good life. I had good parents. There's just no way. And then he started thinking, wait a minute. Typically a psychopath, they lack empathy. Um, they might follow the rules, but their sense of morality is I just want to cover my own butt. I want to look good. I don't want to cause any trouble because it's about me. And they usually really struggle with self-control. And he did struggle with self-control. And he thought, you know, after, after thinking on this, dealing with the shock of this, he wondered how in the world is it possible that somebody in my spot who is apparently has a psychopathic tendency or two or three, how in the world have I gotten this far and done okay? And he kind of had a confession in an interview. This is what he said. He said, I'm obnoxiously competitive. I won't let my grandchildren win games. Another time he said, I do jerky things that just upset people. He said, but while I'm aggressive, eh, I'd rather beat someone in an argument than beat them up. So he wasn't violent, but he still wanted to end up on, on top. So he says, this is me. So when they ask him, how did you make it this far through school, through life, as a husband, as a dad, as a grandparent? And this was his answer. He said, I was loved and that protected me. I was loved, and that protected me. As he started reflecting on growing up, he realized his parents had gone through this series of miscarriages before he had been born, and it was just a real struggle. So by the time he came along 
They were just so excited to have a healthy baby to be born. And they just gave him all this extra attention, all this extra nurture and, and love. And he said, looking back, that is what saved me. That showed there was a different way. So you had this man whose nature, as spelled out on his brain scan, the way his brain was put together, said, this is what he's going to be like. But then that nurture of love made the difference in how he went and lived, how his relationships played out. It was all about that environment of love. That made the difference. And so we've started on this journey. We're just a few weeks in of looking at our church and what kind of environment this is, what our DNA is. We're looking at things like, well, what's our mission? What has God called us to do as Shelbyville Community Church in this county of 44,000 odd some people? What are we here for? We're looking at our vision to say, what are the next few years, this next little season, what does he have ahead? And we're kind of popping the hood and we're, we're looking under there to see how things look because we've got these seven core values. And values are the things that are most important to you. They're the things that show up and they, they shape your environment, they shape your culture. And a lot of these things are things that we would say, well, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's good stuff. That describes us now. But we really believe that when we put those out there, you know, the reason we do it is that you don't just end up somewhere on accident. You know, if I want to be a really good husband, I'm just like, ah, uh, I'm not just going to wake up and say, I hope that works out for me. Otherwise, I'm going to, my wife's going to be ticked off most of the time. But if I go to God and I say, God, I want to be a good, God-loving husband that honors my wife so that we can honor you by raising our kids to love you too. And I'm not going to end up there next time. I have to look at where I'm going. So that's what we're doing. And today, this value that we're looking at, I'm going to have them put it up here on the screen because it kind of speaks to this opening story about James Fallon. It, this is our value. It's all about relational environments. It's we'll create environments of humility and transparency where people are loved and accepted in rich community. We'll create environments of humility and transparency where people are loved and they're accepted in rich community. Now, sometimes we like to say we value people over programs. I, I think it's true. But we're going to talk about well, what are the implications because this isn't something we just pulled out of some HR manual. This is something we really think this flows straight out of God's word. We think we are literally called to this. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. Jesus, I ask that you'll just be present in this room in a special way. I know you're always with us, uh, but Holy Spirit, will you um, do your thing? Will you uh, soften up our hearts, maybe thicken up our skin while you're at it, if you'd be willing? Would you transform our minds uh, so that we're not just thinking our thoughts, we're thinking your thoughts, because you made it possible. Father, um, as we think about who we are, who you called us to be, about what you put us here to do, I just ask, um, we'll see you clearly. I pray that when we walk out of here, we'll go, all right, I've got it. I can go live this. In your name we pray. Amen. <sighs> When we talk about God, when we talk about relational environments, there's something we need to look at right off the bat. Um, several years ago, uh, this group did a study, and they looked at, well, what are the things that is really important for people to understand early on if they're going to be able to grow in their relationship with Jesus? And they looked at that, and one of the things that needed to be talked about early on was something called the Trinity. And the Trinity, uh, you've probably heard about it before, a lot of times there'll be a picture 
uh, like this one here. It's kind of nice, you know, and it represents the three persons. So three persons, one God. Father, represented by the crown. Um, the Son, represented by the pierced hand. And the Holy Spirit, represented by the dove. And there's been a lot of different ways that this has been conveyed to try to say, well, one God, but united in three persons. Um, in recent years, uh, some of you might remember one time Jason did a message on that year, and he had himself in the middle, and he had three people passing dodgeballs around, and, uh, and some people have used a fidget spinner. St. Patrick was said to use a clover. There's been all this stuff, but it's getting at the point that God, in and of himself, has relationship. God doesn't just say, hey, have relationships. He says, no, no, I am relationships. So if we're created in God's image, then that means, well, we can go and we can do as he does, and we can have relationship. This is, might be helpful. I'm going to put up another picture here, because some of y'all, immediately when we start talking about this, you're like, my brain won't wrap around it. So this is one of the ways we think about it. So you got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the Father is not the Son, but the Father is God. And well, the Holy Spirit's not the Father, but the Holy Spirit's God. And well, the Son is, is not the Holy Spirit, but, well, but the Son is God. And so we've got this mystery this mystery playing out that, you know, God is a relational God. When he calls us to go out and he calls us to take this good news, he calls us to pursue our relationship with Jesus, tell other people about our stories so that they can see their stories part of his. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, go do this, go do this, because I, I said it, say, no, I made you for this. I'm a relational God, so you need to be relational people. That just comes with the territory. So, even just in and of himself, God is a relational environment. And when he says, hey, I'm going to make it possible for you to know me, he invites us into that. Such a cool thing, right off the bat. But it gets bigger than that. We fast forward in God's story. He's existed forever. But we got to look at something, and you might know this a little bit. This is in the book of Exodus. We studied this last year. And it's a section called the Ten Commandments. Now, when most people say Ten Commandments, you're going to think of this. You're going to think of Charlton Heston, Holden you know, holding the tablets, and you're going to think about that. It's on ABC every year for the past 50-odd-some years, right? But the Ten Commandments show us, you know what, God, He really is a relational God. He's all about relationship. Because if you look back, you see that even though God's people, they were living in a, under a different covenant, and it was a long time ago, they were serving the same God. He hasn't changed. We just understand Him a little bit better now in some ways. And when we see the Ten Commandments, I'm going to have them put them up here on the screen. This is them in short, common language. You see these? You're probably pretty familiar with them. And a lot of us are really tempted to think, well, these are just rules that help us be good. But, but they're more than that. These were literally given to us by God to help us navigate life and to pursue our relationship with Him. That's why these are here. They helped preserve relationship. They helped nurture relationship. And so let's, let's look through this real quick. All right, so let's start with the first one. So I am the Lord your God. So the command said, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, why? Why would you not have another God before God? Well, it's because that breaks the relationship. That's not love, and he's a loving God. Well, the next one, why, why would you have no idols and not worship them? Well, that would break the relationship. Well, what about misusing his name? Yeah, that would harm the relationship. That's not loving. Well, what about remembering the Sabbath? Well, remembering the Sabbath day that God gave, that honors that relationship. That's very consistent with God's love. We got to do that. Okay, so those all deal with our relationship with God. Well, what about the other ones? Honor your father and mother. Okay, that builds up that relationship. That's consistent with love. Well, don't murder. Well, 
well, that's bad for a relationship. That actually literally kills the person and the relationship. So, so I, I think that's inconsistent with love. We're not going to do that. Uh, don't commit adultery. Yep, that breaks relationship. Don't steal. Breaks the relationship. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. It breaks your relationship. Might end up breaking your fence too. Don't, don't covet the things that belong to your neighbor. Yeah, that harms the relationship. It's inconsistent with love. So you look at this. It isn't just a bunch of rules. That's God saying, hey, we have these, this like safety, this boundary around this that if you live in between these bounds, it's going to preserve your relationships. It's going to nurture it. You're going to know me better, and you're going to connect better with others, which I made you to do. And then Jesus comes along, and he made it so much easier on us because he said, hey, I can sum all of that up. That's the old covenant and the new covenant. Just remember this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do those two things, just like the Ten Commandments was starting to call you towards, man, you do that, boom, you're going to honor me. You know, so even from the beginning, even before we get to the New Testament, and as Brad said, there's so many of these one another's, love one another, love one another, love one another. It happens like 50 times, even in the very earliest days of God's people. The nation of Israel was a relational environment. God was serious about this. He was so serious about it. But I think we should probably fast forward really quick. Let's jump to the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, some of y'all are familiar with this. Uh, some of the ways, like, they'll list each fruit with, uh, you know, a, a certain actual fruit. Or there's a song, my kids were doing this song, and it's called, like, the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. I think it's kind of a lame song, but it's kind of catchy. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it just is, okay? But, but it helped them memorize it, so I let it go. I let it go. So with the fruit of the Spirit, this kind of ends up working out the same way. Because, um, can we jump to the next picture? So when we started teaching this to our kids... Um, we use this show, it's this little mini-series on Right Now Media, and we watch this, it's called Micah's Super Vlog, and this super naughty uh, kid that I think is like a third or fourth grader is learning about all these things, and my kids get to learn by watching him make all these mistakes, and it's awesome. And so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You got all these fruits. Well, why does Paul just start listing all this stuff? Because we'd say, that sounds pretty good. That sounds awesome. We'll actually read the verses. Let's start. This is Galatians 5. Let's go with verse 19. We'll start there. So Paul, he says, all right, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. This is quite the list we start out here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, and it goes on. Envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, anyone living that sort of life, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. All righty, great. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. So those who belong to Christ Jesus, so if you're a disciple... You've nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and it has crucified them there. So since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So Paul sends this letter to this church in this region called Galatia. Probably went to several churches. One read it, they passed it along. Another read it, they passed it along. And it got passed around and he said, hey, you, you, you've had this all wrong. You've reduced this to following rules and you've missed Jesus. But let me tell you, there's another way. If you live according to the Spirit and you get this right, and you start really trusting him, 
that when he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, this is the stuff that's going to start showing up. We put that picture again of the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's working in you, you're going to start seeing these things show up in your life. And when you run these through, kind of like we did the Ten Commandments, it works very similarly. So, okay, well, what's the point of love? Well, love asks the question, well, for whom? Who do we love? Who do we show love for? All right, well, what about joy? Well, joy demonstrated for whom? Okay, yeah, that's relational. Peace? Well, peace between whom? Patience? Patience for whom? Kindness? Well, who are we showing it to? Goodness? Well, who are we passing the goodness on to? Faithfulness? Who are we being faithful to? Gentleness? Well, who are we giving gentleness to? Or self-control? Well, who are we honoring by showing that self-control? You know, which of these, if you looked at all of these fruits, which of these do you not live out in the context of relationship? None of them. None of them. They're all about relationship. So here we are way later in God's story with lots more of the dots connected, and he's still calling him. He's saying, hey, here's the deal. We're all about relationship. I'm relationship. I've created you to be about this. And the cool thing about fruit is, the way that you measure this in your life, because most of us, we look and we're like, a lot of times when I read this, I'm like, okay, where am I at? Okay, I'm good. Joy, I'm pretty joyful right now. Kindness, I'm pretty kind, yep. Uh, self-control, oh, not with that bag of Oreos last night. You know, honestly, that, that's where we are. But our fruit is measured by our capacity to be in relationship with other people. You know, ironically, if I eat all the Oreos, I also draw the ire of my wife and my children. I just connected that. So the very things that the Holy Spirit is growing us in, what is it doing? It's not just for our own good. It's getting us ready for relationship. It's a relational thing. You know, when I, um, uh, when I talk about this church, it's funny because we're talking about this value series. And I've been around here a decent amount. When I got to show up here, when my family came, it was the fall of 98. We didn't even have this building. We were over in the boys club in town and we were meeting. And I was about ready to turn 13 it was the most, one of the most awkward eras of my life. It just was a time where I just remember just a lot of confusion, um, a lot of chubbiness, and a lot of really baggy jeans that should not have been worn, but I wore them anyway. That's when I think of that era. But I just remember there being something different, even 22 years ago. You know, so when I talk about relational environments, we say, this is a relational place. I'm a little bit biased because through the years, in spite of all the things that have happened over and over, I have seen this stuff. This has been shown to me. You know, every single one of these, I've said, yeah, that has been shown to me through people here. I didn't deserve it. So when I went to move back, was I excited to bring my kids and bring my wife back to come here? Yeah, I was, because this stuff was waiting for me. This stuff was here. And I went, I, I'm, I was psyched about that, that this is a relational environment, that despite our issues and our flaws that we're trying to address, that was waiting when I came back. So we're going to take one more snapshot here. This backs it up just slightly from where Paul was, but this is actually during what was probably one of the most difficult weekends in the history of the world. Because if you ever have read the story or heard the story about when Jesus was crucified, leading up to it, it was just kind of a disaster. They went to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when they went to arrest him, uh, everybody just fled. Everybody bailed on him. The book of Mark even says there was a teenage guy trying to do it, and he fled, and when he did, they grabbed his clothes and he ran off naked, okay? So you've even got some dude streaking. It was a bad, 
bad night. It was not good. When it came to him being on the cross, there's really only one guy, one disciple, John, who's there with some women, including Jesus' mom. They'd abandoned him. He'd been put in the grave. And so you had all these people who'd been following Jesus. They're confused, angry, sad. And it, said in, it says in John 20, Gospel of John, it says that they're all gathered in this room and they're fearful, they're afraid. Because they're like, well, hey, those Jews, they just went and killed the guy that we thought was going to save us. So what are they going to do to us? And they're sitting here and they're probably just grappling. They're second-guessing their decision to run away. They're maybe second-guessing some of them. Why did we follow them in the first place? Did we miss something? They're feeling shame that they abandoned them. They're wondering what's going to happen next. I'm so disappointed. And in the middle of all this, all of a sudden, there comes this knock. And when they go to the door, probably also kind of afraid, is it someone who's going to kill us? There's a couple of their sisters there, a couple of women. They say, hey, here's the deal. We just went to the tomb, and Jesus, like, he, he resurrected. He's not actually dead. And in that moment, you can imagine, they're so confused, they're all gathered here together, and they get this news, and it just starts transforming all those thoughts. Well, if that's the case, what's going to happen next? I'm going to have a chance to ask him to forgive me. I don't have to carry that shame and that guilt. All of this happens. And then finally, Jesus himself shows up in the spot. We're going to read that. This starts in verse 19. It says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, he was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So he says this. He shows up. And what I really love is, where were they at? They were in this room together. Even when things were at their absolute worst, they stayed together. They sat in their confusion together, their disappointment, their sadness, and they're together when he shows up because the relationships have been forged. They had so been forged over several years. Uh, we're going to show a map because it's not a message on Sunday morning if you don't have a map, people. Seriously. Check out this. So this is where Jesus grew up. You see down in the bottom corner here, this is Nazareth where he was raised. And he did a lot of his ministry here. And a few years ago, they started trying to figure out where would Jesus have spent most of his time? Uh, when I got to go to Israel with uh, Sarah, Sarah and I got to go with her grandparents many years ago, we stood on this mountain, that, that lower green dot at Magdala. So there's this mountain there, and you can look out to the northeast towards Bethsaida and Chorazin. And we were standing up there, and the lady who was giving our tour, she said, they estimate that Jesus spent 80% of his time in kind of this little triangle area. And there's not a lot of square miles there. You know, he may have gone a little bit west or whatever, but for the most part, most of what we know about Jesus' three-year ministry is in that triangle. You don't stay in that small of a triangle if you're not relational. You know, you don't do that, that he's a relational God. Jesus is part of that relationship, and he brought it with him. And he brought these 12 dudes and several women and some other folks along with him. And they'd forged these relationships and Jesus shows up. He says, hey, you don't need to be down and out because I'm not just for you. I'm not just with you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be in you. And the stuff he's going to do, it's going to be nuts. You can hear these stories 
And you can almost end up thinking, yeah, that sounds really great, and you've heard it a lot. I had reached one of those points a couple years ago, um, had just started pursuing my master's, had just moved to Charlotte. Uh, our bank account was in pretty sorry shape. Um, we were exhausted. Sarah was pregnant. We had two little boys, uh, which we loved to death, but we felt like we couldn't give them the attention they needed. And I was just trying to do school. I was working at Chick-fil-A because it was the only job I could find at the time. And it was just this nutty time. And in the midst of it, I met this man who is one of my favorite people in the world. And his name is Percy. His name is Percy Burns. He's this retired pastor. And he just happened to be serving as the chaplain at the school, at the seminary. So I met this guy, and he was just so likable. Um, he, <laughs> he's from Mississippi, so he has this drawl, and he kind of talks like that. And everyone just hung on his words. But it wasn't just that. It was when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, they were just all over this dude's life. People just got around him and went, I just want to know this man. Clearly God is doing something in him. And he started to teach me about how the Holy Spirit wanted to work in my life, about the fact that, you know, when I got attacked by the enemy, I had a way to push back. I could call on Jesus' name and I could ask for help and he'd show up and he'd deliver me. And I was so intrigued and I, I said, I kind of want more. Where do I go with this? He said, well, I need you to drive down to my house. I know it's almost an hour. We need you to come on Monday night. Every Monday night, we get together there for this worship and prayer night with men. So I went. And in this room, you had every generation of guy uh, from about age 15 or 16 up to guys that were in their 80s. And we we're packed out. I'm actually going to show a picture of this room. Here it is, yeah. And so this is actually, I believe, the back of Percy's head, the gray head here. And you had men, this is just a fraction of them, who would just gather together. And when you went in, he would stand up there. He'd say, hey, guys, here's the deal. Um, we're just going to have this time, and we're going to um, just get into worshiping God and sing some songs, and as he leads us, we'll see what he does. And they would start, and we'd start singing. And it caught me off guard because, man, this singing, it wasn't regular singing. You know, they say a lot of times men don't sing well, and when they do sing, they don't sing very loud. It's kind of the stereotype. I would submit that that's mostly true, but also women usually sing much better than men and sing louder. So it's probably kind of a little bit of both, okay? But ladies, you do sound better than dudes usually. But these men were belting it out. It wasn't just like, hey, we're going to do this because we're supposed to. It was, I believe every word that's coming out of my mouth, and I'm going to sing it. Guys would start praying for each other, and they would just start praying, and all of a sudden, you might see a guy go over to another guy and say, hey, um, hey, my name's, you know, mine's Joe, and I know I don't know you, but I think God just told me I'm supposed to say this to you. So I'm, I've told you, and now you can go pray and ask him what that means. Guys would just sense God's lead, and they would just go and just pray to heal people who were just broken or sick, um, people who were under attack from the enemy, from Satan. We would just pray over them, and it was just this time where it was like we just went to Jesus' feet, and there was Percy pointing the way, guiding us, loving us, so much humility, so honest about where he was at as an almost 80-year-old dude. And we were just encountering Jesus, and I was just like, I, I've got to have this. And ever since then, when I sit on that row getting ready to come up here, and I sing songs, or I go to read my Bible, I go to prepare to talk at a time like this, I go to sit with someone who's hurting, I just think of it differently because I saw this is such an awesome thing that God does. This environment that he makes, this relational environment, I got to make that happen other places. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I serve a relational God. So we hear all of this, 
We trace this out. We talked about who God was. He's the Trinity. We looked at the Ten Commandments and how He uh, wanted to nurture and preserve relationship. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit and how that if you have that, how much of that you have in your life is equal to how well you're able to have relationship with other people. We looked at after the crucifixion, when things were at their worst, how Jesus shows up and he does his best. So as far as I know, the reputation SCC has had in our lifetime is that we're kind of this place that you literally can come as you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you struggle with, no matter who you are, what your background is, and there's a place for you here. If it's on a Sunday morning, if it's in a small group, if it's at youth group on Sunday night or Wednesday night, if it's with Roots, with the kids' ministry on a Tuesday night, you can come as you are. It doesn't matter, kid, teen, addicted, if you're in a period of grief, if you're doing well. You know, our win is not just that you come and, hey, be part of this program. Our win is if you're a person and you love Jesus, we're supposed to do this together. That's what we're about. So my challenge for you today is this. As you sit in here, and um, in just a minute, we're going to have a chance to respond in a cool way. But maybe you're wondering, well, what do I do with this then? I serve this relational God. This is supposed to be a relational environment. What do you want me to do? Well, here's what I challenge you with. Whenever we talk about creating an environment, it's a we thing. I, I can't do it, Brad, Brandon, Mary, Jess. We can't do it, but we, we can. So think as you sit here, you know, if you're like, wow, my small group just started meeting, I'd say, well, okay, can you ask God for chances to, for you to show humility and show transparency? Humility meaning you don't have it all together, and transparency meaning that you don't try to be something you're not. Is that, that's pretty big because, you know what, really usually when God transforms, it's when you're vulnerable. And the difference when you're transparent, you say, I'm going to be authentic, I'm not going to be fake. When you're vulnerable, it means I'm going to share something and if you wanted, you could literally take this and you could hurt me really badly. But I trust you're not going to. That's where relationships get forged. So you're in this new small group. Maybe you know folks, maybe you don't. And I would challenge you, can you take that seriously and say, you know, I'm going to go to Jesus' feet and I'm going to ask him, all right, how do I be a part of that? And the other thing is this. Most of us assume at some point that a relationship is broken beyond repair and we just kind of set it aside like, nah, nah, I, I jacked that up. It's done. And yet we look and then we start noticing God working and healing relationships, marriages, friendships, our relationship with him getting better when we, we could have sworn that he's just going to bail on us. And, and then he doesn't. He stays faithful. You know, I, I had an experience, I've spoken about it before, where I worked at a church and it was probably the worst 15 months of my life. It was horrible. They, they didn't treat me well. I didn't treat my fellow staff members well. And I came out of it just questioning all kinds of things, just hurt and wounded and angry. And at, over the years, I went and I started to heal. And as it went by, we got about eight years later, and I jump on Facebook, which I don't spend a ton of time, but I jump on there once in a while, and there's a friend request. And the friend request was from my supervisor at that church who made my life hell. And I remember looking at that friend request, and I remember thinking, heck no. And then I went, hmm, you know what? I got to forgive him. And I did, and I clicked the accept button. And later he removed me as a friend, and I don't know what to think about that. 
I don't know what to think about that. But here's this guy. I didn't even want to utter this man's name, and he's on my friend list because I wasn't willing to write him off, or I wanted to, and God said, uh, 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 uh. no, that's not how this is going to fly, man. So if there's a relationship that you think that thing is toast, this might be the time you go to Jesus' feet and say, if you will heal that, and if you want me to do something to surrender that, I will do it. So think on those two things. What's your role in creating this culture to be a relational environment where people can come and encounter Jesus? And then are there relationships that are wounded and hurting that they're weighing you down? They're going to compromise your ability to do what God's asking you to do. Will you take that seriously? The band's going to come up right now, and we're going to respond in a second. Can we put that value up one more time? We say we're all about relational environments because we serve a relational God. So we'll create environments of humility and transparency where people are loved and accepted in rich community. We're asking God, will he make that true today, next week, on and on and on. So in this response time, we're going to do a couple things. One, we say all the time, time, talents, and treasures. We got all three. You get to respond with all of them. So if you're sitting here and we're talking about groups and we're talking about church life and you've been on the fence with a gift and you're like, man, I got to get out and use this thing. God, God gave it to me. If, if you want to serve, pop out to the desk as soon as we're done. Say, hey, I want to plug in somewhere and I just want to serve and give my time and my gifts. If, um, if maybe God prompted you and said, hey, I, I want you to really give back your tithes and your offerings, and I want you to do it now, and here's the amount I want you to give. Find one of these boxes on the communion tables and just go and just give back to God and say, God, thanks for giving this to me in the first place. Here it is back. Do with it what you want. Do that. And the third thing is, once a month, we take the time to celebrate communion and remember what Jesus did. And so I'm going to read what the Apostle Paul wrote about this when he was talking to the church about this is the right way to celebrate this meal. So let's read those verses together and then we will celebrate. Let's go to the, um, oh, this isn't on the screen. It's just on my sheet. Sorry, guys. Listen as I read God's word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you go, and if you choose to celebrate this, if not, and you just need to sit and just pray and just sit with Jesus, that's fine. But as you go celebrate, remember that this bread represents the body that got broken. This blood represents the blood that got shed so that our relationship with God could be restored and that we can come into a place like this, this environment here, and say, you know what, these relationships, this is a force to be reckoned with because... I see God at work. So let's celebrate together. Father, meet us in this time. Holy Spirit, change our hearts. If we come forward and we just need prayer, Father, if we feel like we can't get to you by ourselves, will you um, 
Will you get us there, even if it takes somebody else? Father, in this time, maybe we respond to you like you want us to do. Will you just show up like you so often do? In your name we pray. Amen.